Welcome to the Monday Zoom lunch session. This is the first open mic we've had since we started this project, I guess in July. Usually we have a guest, but today we're going to have you be the guest. And I thought it would be fun to start out with one icebreaker question that everyone can speak to if you so choose. You don't have to, but it's kind of a fun way to get to know one another. And that is to think of somebody you admire or have admired. Maybe it's a colleague, maybe it's a public official, maybe, let's stay away from family members because everybody feels obligated to mention their mother or their father or their spouse or whatever. So let's just take that one off the table. But think of somebody that you've admired and why, what characteristics did that person have? And if you're ready, if somebody comes to mind immediately, just raise your hand and we'll start with you. All right, Terry, you have the honors of being I'm, I'm, first. I'm looking at my screen and right in the middle is one of the people I I I, uh, I, I really honor and, and cherish a relationship and that's Bryce Oakley. Um, Bryce, yeah, I know Bryce, I don't want to embarrass you, but you know, Bryce Oakley has seen me through an awful lot. And uh, uh, has always been a, a, a wise mentor to me, and I usually listen to him. Uh, he uh, um, he's a guy I can trust, and 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 I think one of his motivations for me has always been that he he's interested in my learning, and so he's always willing to to, to share his kind of insights and broaden my minds in the pro- mind in the process, and uh, and at times when. When I have uh, uh, have not seen things correctly, or times when I yelled at the governor when I shouldn't have had my mic on, remember that one, Julie? Uh, I, he uh, uh, has always been one that accept, has, has accepted me despite that, and has wisely counseled me how to uh, how how to be more careful next time. He didn't do in that specific one, but I can think back through a a time when when I was appointed by the governor to a committee and he was on another committee and we had to work together and uh, he, he kind of calmed me down uh, and, and subdued. You remember that, don't you, Bryce? Subdued some of my passion so that I, I could, uh, uh, I could be more effective. So that's, he's one. And ironically, you asked the question, he's, he's sitting right in the middle of my screen. So. Well, how nice. How nice. Bryce, would you care to respond? You'll need to take your mic off of mute, and we'd love to hear your response. Well, that's very generous, and, and uh, there's certainly a lot more high-profile people. But, you know, we all have the opportunity, and I've looked at this screen now for six months of people that have joined in this, Julie, and uh, that was uh, – I thought we all might have to suggest – I think this collection of people um, are are what I call futurists. And uh, futurists are those who are the early ones to identify opportunity and act upon it. And I'll, I'm going to uh, add a, a class of people that I admire. I admire, in particular, three governors, Harold Hughes, Bob Ray, and Tom Vilsack, because all served at difficult times, but they trusted uh, their judgment and that of others in opportunities when decisions had to be made that made a difference. Harold Hughes, uh, as a governor, had probably rather low expectations as a policymaker, changed his state. He was the first modern governor of the state of Iowa. Um, Secondly, Bob Ray, coming in the, the president of the uh, governorship at a time when nationally we were upside down, uh, when there were tremendous changes, the culture wars began in, in his view. Uh, Ken Quinn remembers, uh, remembers those and others that, that served on the staff in particular. And uh, he, he created, he identified opportunities and acted upon them. Tom Vilsack, in particular, the Vision Iowa program was another thing. It was needed, it was necessary, and with Mike Gartner and others that participated in that, changed the face of particularly 
urban, but more so the whole state in uh, that Vision Iowa program. So I would submit that as a class, governors have opportunities unique to their time of service. And those who identify opportunities when it isn't easy sledding, but important things for the whole of the state, that's uh, three people that I admire a great deal. Nicely done, nicely done. For those of you who have just joined us, we're starting this open show here with a question to anyone who chooses to respond. And that is, think of somebody that you admire or have admired. They can be living, they can be not living, but somebody in your life, personally, that you admire. Jim, love to hear you. You are on mute, so you'll need to take that off mute. Jim Sayers, nice to see you. Good to see you and good to see everyone. And uh, it's interesting, a lot of the folks online today are becoming my friends, even though I have not met everybody in person. Uh, a person I admire, and this just re, uh, comes to mind easily. Yesterday, I was participating in a two-hour long Zoom of former uh, students. We had been students at Iowa State in the Wesley Foundation back in the uh, 80s. And one of our people in the call was Pastor Gary Putnam, who was a campus minister way, way back. It's like 50 years ago now. And so here was a bunch of old people reminiscing about Iowa State University, but the difference that the Wesley Foundation and particularly Reverend Putnam, the campus minister, made on our lives. Uh, even on the call, there were several people who ended up becoming pastors due to just knowing Gary, uh, his influence. I worked for the church in a couple of capacities, not as a pastor over the years. But probably more important to me, why I admire him, as I had to say yesterday, I learned about acceptance and, and understanding of people who are not like myself. You know, I was a rural farm boy in 4-H and, and never had even seen a Never had to talk to a black person till I was a freshman at college, and I sat next to a, a young lady in chemistry, uh, the lecture hall, and she said, can I look on your book? And I said, oh, okay. You know, my life had been so, I guess, narrow or sheltered, and, and through Gary, especially, uh, I learned acceptance and understanding and just how to welcome people not like me. And he comes to mind because he is, in my opinion, a saint. I if I could be like Gary Putnam, I would have a, a successful life. Nice, nice. Good conversations. Who wants to go next? Someone you have admired. What characteristics does that person have? Merlin, you're next and you'll need to. There you go. Okay. Well, I will second what about uh, now Secretary Vilsack. Uh, I actually got to, to know him and was introduced to him through person that I really want to acknowledge as well, and that's Jack Hatch, former Senator Jack Hatch, who was a gubernatorial candidate and came very close to becoming the, the mayor of Des Moines. But um, through Jack, um, I was introduced to uh, an idea um, before he did the second uh, rendition back in, in Washington, and that was zero emission farming. And so one of the things I'm engaged in is regenerative ag. It's part of a seven-part uh, program that we're putting together for the state of Iowa. And, of course, education is one of those other parts. So we need to talk about that, Julie, uh, in the not-too-distant future with the movement that I think you got started on that terrific podcast that you and uh, Reiko put together. So anyway, Jack is... Um, um, Grew up in, in Connecticut and went to Drake and uh, fell in love with Iowa and never left. And uh, I just found him to be a, a very unusual politician that he was willing to take a stand and do the right things for the right reasons, even when people in his own party uh, refused to go there because um, uh, they were afraid of not being able to get reelected again. So anyway, um, Jack is, uh, you know, spending half of his time down in Mexico and half of his time back in Iowa, but he's coming back soon. And uh, we're going to go to work um, on the uh, Iowa Democratic Party. And uh, uh, I think all of the things that uh, he wants to see happen, uh, along with, um, you know, education and uh, soil and ag and food and farming and all the things that Iowa's about, uh, there's a movement happening. And um, we'd love to. Uh, Merlin, you're ready to launch it. 
you are your your uh, volume is cutting in and out. I'm not sure why, but I think we got most of it. Thank you so much for participating in this. And again, the question to you all is: think of somebody uh, in leadership position that you admire. Maybe it's somebody in your life currently, uh, somebody you worked with in years past. Who might come to mind when asked that question? Denise O'Brien, you are up next. I believe you're still muted. So next, you're up. All right. Okay. I want to say a person who I've come to admire a lot in the last year is Deidre DeGere. She is an amazing, amazing woman. And I think she she lacked support from a lot of people in the in in Iowa and she boy she just plowed on through she her meetings when people she could rally people her uh, her approach was we can do this and you know and it's just she would make people feel so good when she was done you know, addressing a group of a, a group. And um, I just want to say that um, Deidre is high, high on my list and I, and she'll continue to be a leader. And then <clears throat> there's another woman on this, um, on this call that I look up to and admire. And her name is Mary Ellen Miller down in, she's in my lower left hand corner in my, on my picture. But when I see Mary Ellen work with the soil and conservation people, and she works with silt and she heats her house with wood and she puts up her wood and she's in her eighties. And I see her Facebook posts and I go, Okay, I can do this. I'm a little bit younger than her, but I can do this. She is just, I I admire her greatly. Thanks, Mary Ellen. Well, how nice. Thank you. Mary Ellen, you're going to have to turn your video on so we can see your smiling face. Billy Wade, you are up next and you are still muted. There we go. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Somebody you've admired. Yes. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, uh, our Lucia Howell, uh, she, uh, started out at, um, Banker's Life and which of course later became principal and she became a vice president and, um, moved to Washington DC to head up lobbying efforts there. And Lucia is just one of the kindest most generous people I've ever met. She is down to earth. She is um, inclusive. She's just a remarkable woman. And uh, I have admired her for years. That's great. Thank you. All right. Anybody want to go next? Terry Rich, I haven't seen you in a while. My gosh, what the heck are you up to? Where are you? Yeah, I'm finally retired, but I'm doing a lot of traveling, so I'm still involved in a, quite a few different things, trying to keep my finger in politics a little bit, but things are going good. You know, I, I assume you were leading me to say what, what whom I would admire. Do you want to lead right into that? Well, I do, but I want to say first, um, you know, as we talk about leadership abilities, you are one heck of a leader. I mean, I think of how you have created things out of out of nowhere. <laughs> And turned turned events that might have had one or two people show up into massive extravaganzas. I don't know how you did it. I don't know what where you get your energy, but uh, and I don't even know half of what you've been involved with. So tell us tell us what you're doing first, and then I'd love to hear who you admire and who inspired you. Well, as many know, I grew up in Jefferson, Cooper, Iowa, with Chuck Offenberger. So he's kind of taken over as an ambassador for Cooper and. And uh, had an instructor named Jack Oates who was in jazz in the day before jazz was cool. And we had just an amazing jazz band in the little farm town that taught me the first step in culture. And I uh, went to Iowa State, was going to be a math major, and ultimately ended up with cable television for 20 years. Then we got cashed out. And so I started my own company, did a lot of work for uh, the contacts that I had in the cable industry, and then ran the zoo for about six, seven years. Uh, which was really, really fun and a fun give back. And then obviously the Iowa lottery. So 
now I'm on the road doing a lot of speaking on the lottery fraud that we busted in the day with Rob Sand and group. So that's kind of a quick brief, but family's all here. You know, people have, we talk about how great Iowa is. My whole family's here. All my kids are here. All my grandkids are within distance. I see them every week and few people get that in life either. So yeah, say a little bit more about that lottery fraud uh, story. Um, well, uh, we had a gentleman who worked for a vendor to the lottery, and, you know, and I'm a lottery, I'm a marketing promotion. So, you know, getting more people to buy was easy enough. You don't want to over promote and over promise, but uh, that was going well until we found out that someone had a ticket that seemed kind of fraudulent. And so we went after it and kept going and got a lot of political feedback from my counterparts in other states saying, you're going to kill this $80 billion industry. People won't want to play if you keep saying that we may have fraud within the business. Lo and behold, uh, Rob Sand walked in as the prosecutor. We kept doing the investigation. We we handed it over to him, and we found out it was a vendor who had put a code in to rig for $16.5 million, ultimately the largest lottery jackpot in U.S. history because they had taken money from four or five other states. So that kind of turned into a crazy story in eight years of, of uh, business. The other thing it taught me politically, you get, we've talked a little about politics, I've heard different politicians, is that uh, I'm sure glad I live in Iowa because both governor, or all three governors that were involved in this deal, which was Culver, Branstead, and and, Ultima, and Reynolds after we busted it, um, all said, we don't care what it costs, find out what's going on. The game has to be fair and honest. And if we'd have been in, in Illinois, there's no doubt in my mind that I said, keep selling tickets because we need the money. And uh, I was really proud of the ethics that I heard uh, from our elected officials in that. And you don't often get to give credit to elected officials who will do the right thing. Terry, do you mind me asking you some lottery questions while you're while you're on the spot here? Number 71 <laughs> you want to buy. No, oh, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm old enough to remember when the lottery was uh, was just a gleam in the eye of some who sure. might be benefiting from it. And the the line was that if we all voted for the lottery, that that education would all the pro, all the profits would be going to education. What happened to that? When it first uh, was brought in, that was the original thought. But when it actually happened and and uh, they agreed, the legislature agreed, they decided to put it in the general fund. So the promise was, yeah, it'll go to education. But you know, how legislatures work over the years. Uh, you take a little if you're if you're bringing in $50 million in lottery profits, um, you put it into education, but education might get less on the other side of 50 million. So I think, you know, it, it helps the state. There's no doubt about it. Taxes would be higher if we didn't have the lottery going, but that's, that's really, it really goes into the general fund is ultimately where it went. And that started from the very beginning. Uh, some states do it where they pay for education, where they pay uh, the first year of your college education, that sort of thing. And, Basically, that could be allocated any time because the money's there to pay however they want. But that's that's a history there, Julie. Yeah, I think I just it just um, it just felt like such a bait and switch. You know, I think a lot of people in communities felt like, okay, well, if it's going to public education, then then I'll I guess I'll I'll support it. And then, boy, it didn't take long for that to go into the general fund. And now look where yeah. I'm. Well, uh, and you'll notice mo- even today, most people say, well, it's going to a good cause. Every state has their own lottery. It goes to a good cause. So they'll say, yeah, I lost, but it goes to a good cause. Nah, they wanted to win to begin with. I'll guarantee it. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for being on the call. So tell me who comes to mind when you think of somebody you admire that it influenced you and what characteristics did that leader possess? Uh, back to the Iowa honesty, you know, Bill Riley was my mentor, Jim County was my business mentor, and both of those had more ethics and, you know, I learned from them, do the right thing, uh, be kind to people. Chuck Offenberger became a really good friend in the latter years here, but the folks like uh, Gloria Burnett, who was a real activist in that, and, and uh, um, got one, I had one other, and Connie, Connie Weimer has been a, a fun influence all are looking for ways to help the community and help uh, do do well. Margo Blumenthal was who I was trying to think of, uh, have all been good influencers on me to learn new things and to learn how to give back in, in society. But it boils down to when you live in Iowa, all of us sitting around here, we can, all can get a conversation with anybody on any plane. Uh, that's the benefit of growing up in this area and why it's been important to me. 
Okay, thanks. Who wants to go next? Think of somebody you have admired or do admire currently. Okay, Anne, I'd love to hear from you. You're on mute. You're still on mute. There. Sorry, it, it just takes four clicks to, to get me off mute, it turns out. Um, so a couple of people, I thought I had to really think back, because that's a very good question, Julie, and, and it really gets me teeing up people that I haven't thought about for a long time or people who are still in my everyday life. And there are two individuals that kind of played a similar role. And this is decades ago. So this is before my business was doing all that much, but I went to each one of them with a business question. And each of them took the meeting with me, which um, I wasn't, I don't even know that I was doing the Iowa poll for the register yet, but running my company. And in both cases, what uh, I got kind of a similar reaction, they became an informal advisor. And one of the people is Michael Gartner. And I went to him because I'd been asked to mediate or moderate a meeting between the Des Moines Register and uh, another media company about some joint ventures. And I, I said, I need to talk to somebody who has some clue as to how, how, how this is likely to go. What, what are the stories behind the scenes that I don't know about? What are the pitfalls along the way here, things I should be available for? And the other one is Doug Gross. And I had been working for an organization from the East Coast that his organization here, a, a collaborative, had hired. And they hired me. And there was, I, I was not comfortable when the project was done. I called and said, I, you know, I'd like to talk to you. And I came in. And he could see that I was uncomfortable because I wanted to say, this didn't go as well as it could. And, and what I would like is to work more directly with the people who are here. And I, as I started to lay this out, he could see I was uncomfortable, that I was going to say some things. And he said, he interrupted to say, you should know that no matter what you say here, it will never hurt you. It will never come back to hurt you. And which was, you know, a remarkable thing to say. And in both cases, what I get from them is the truth that neither one of them is afraid to say what they really think. And maybe I agree with it and maybe I don't, and that's fine too. But that that there's a door that's open there to talk about some things and get a different here. And they're both among the smartest people that I've ever known. So two, two different uh, political views, but very helpful to me. No, that's great. That's great. Thank you, Anne. I appreciate that. Who would like to go next? Anybody? Ken Quinn. Yes. I'd love to know who you've admired and what leadership qualities does that person oh, people possess? Thank you. This, this is a really tough uh, question. And um, the uh, first uh, I came on when Bryce was being extolled. And of course, he was uh, and Doug Gross were both on Governor Ray's staff when I was there. And I remember both of them in the same way that they've been spoken of here, and both are, are, are long-standing friends. Um, when I go through all the various individuals I, you know, dealt with or came in contact with or observed in all my, my career, uh, there's three individuals who stand out. Uh, two are Iowans. One is Governor Ray. The second is Norman Borlaug, and the third is Corazon Aquino, who was president of the Philippines uh, in uh, 1986, and who took on Ferdinand Marcos, and who stood up and people tried to kill her and kill her children, and she was incredibly brave and a heroine of democracy. And I, after she retired, I uh, invited her and she accepted to be a member of the World Food Prize Council of Advisors. Um, Governor Ray, I admired for his internal, deeply held beliefs, which I spoke of and I gave uh, his eulogy at his memorial service of how he, while he didn't wear his religion on his sleeve, he was uh, motivated by that sense of Christianity, uh, to which to him was that his obligation 
in the world was to his fellow human beings, even if they were totally different from him in in every almost every respect. And that, of course, was about refugees from Southeast Asia who were in danger of losing their lives. And without ever a thought about any political consequence, he you know stepped forward and uh, and led the effort in the world when no one was accepting any of the boat people refugees and uh, led the effort to change American policy and to change global policy and save all those people. Norman Borlaug was so humble, uh, a man who worked among the poorest, poorest farmers in Mexico, um, you know, out, out with them in, the, in their fields, motivated by the searing images he remembered of people uh, sleeping, hungry people sleeping on the streets in, um, in Minneapolis when he was going to the University of Minnesota. And he carried it uh, to Mexico, to India, to Pakistan, and even to places, you know, Egypt and Iran. If you can imagine, uh, you know, the institution in Iran tried to buy a copy of the statue of Borlaug in the U.S. Capitol to put on their campus in in ter- uh, outside Tehran, and so those three individuals, uh, who I had the incredible privilege uh, to to know and to know them personally and to interact with them, uh, have sort of emerged as the three individuals that I, I admire the most out of all. The, the, the various leaders and figures I encountered in my international career. So thank you so much, Ken. As um, the comment section is heating up over here on the right-hand side of my screen, there are some interesting issues that are being mentioned that I'd like to get to. But before we leave this topic and we can come back to it, I'd just like to say that whenever I'm asked this question, to think of a leader I admire, the same person pops into my mind, and that is Evelyn Davis. I don't know how many of you knew Evelyn Davis, but she was a nurse at Mercy Hospital who uh, realized that childcare was a huge issue in Des Moines' inner city. There were no childcare options. And she took it upon herself to create the first uh, child care center in the heart of the inner city. And she had no business acumen. She had no ties to wealthy people in Des Moines at that point. She just saw a need that needed to be met and nobody was meeting it. And I just always think of Evelyn Davis, who created something out of nothing, just with sheer will and guts. And um, I'm so glad that she is honored posthumously by having a park in Des Moines named after her. Um, And I think Creative Visions, if you've never been to Creative Visions, there's this beautiful mural of Evelyn Davis with children gathered around her. Um, And it's just a it's just a beautiful, beautiful mural. So that's my contribution to the discussion. Uh, Let's see. Mary Ellen Miller, who was applauded earlier, uh, mentions that the legislature is now messing with the I will formula. And they kicked out state park rangers from the houses in the parks. And now they want to use the funds to boost the ranger salaries. But the rangers now have to provide their own housing. Can you tell more about that, Mary Ellen? Sure. And what's interesting was um, I, I have friends who were park rangers when they closed the houses. And what was interesting to me was at Red Hall, one of my friends was the park ranger there. The year before they decided to close these houses, and I still haven't found who made that decision, whether it was the governor or the legislature, but I've been told it was not the DNR. But the year before they closed these houses, they spent thousands of dollars on that Red Haw house, redoing, updating the entire interior, two-story brick house. And the next year, and it's sitting there empty. Uh, the value of park rangers for security, and they will say, well, we've got cameras now. That's not true. 
people shoot out the cameras all the time. And that Red Hall State Park has now become a haven for drug dealers because people are afraid to go there. It's such insanity. But I wanted to mention this. It's so important that you are talking to your legislators. So Friday morning, my Senator Amy Sinclair held her first public forum this session. Um, I asked why one wasn't held in January and the response was, we don't have anything to talk about yet. What? And I wanted to say, well, maybe I have something to talk about, but they're only having, she and Joel Fry, my representative, we're only having two forums. But at the forum, I brought up this issue and she said, that's not true. So today I'm sending her the bill, which clearly states in it that they're going to change that funding and use it to pay park rangers salaries. Because of course, I don't fault those park rangers for wanting more money because now they had to go out find their own house, rent, buy, whatever, and had to be 30 minutes from the parks. It's important that we're keeping our eye on the ball with this legislature, people. So much is going under the table, dark of night, uh, 15-minute subcommittee meeting. It's downright scary. What in the world? I wanted to mention who I admire, Julie. Okay, when I want to get back to wonder why I'm so... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I wanted... Yeah, I wanted to say that people say, why are you so involved politically? And I remember being at a conference back in the 80s and hearing Barbara Jordan speak. Now, I don't know that this quote came originated with her, but nonetheless, it stuck with me. Politics is not a spectator sport. Politics is not a spectator sport. People, go to these forums, talk to your legislators. Amy Sinclair said at this forum on Friday morning that she got the majority of her emails and phone calls were supporting school vouchers. There was like eight people in the room opposing school vouchers. Well, a little late, people. It's already been signed by the governor. But I went and asked a couple of them. I said, did you ever send her an email? No. They count, and that's their excuse. Their staff counts how many emails, how many phone calls, and they hand the senator the list. You know, so I think it's we, very important. Yeah. We all need to do a better job of explaining what needs to happen, who to call, when to call, when to show up. Because I think Rake and I were on the road traveling in Western Iowa, Northwest Iowa. And just having random caf- conversations in cafes and uh, restaurants, the overwhelming majority of people we talked to were against vouchers, but they could not name their legislator. They had not, they didn't, obviously didn't contact them. But I think there's a, a belief that bad things won't happen because you elect people to office and they should be ethically bound to some principles. Julie, I want to make a quick note about a bill that I'm told is not going to go anywhere, but I'm not so sure. In an effort to thwart caucuses on the Republican side, the Republicans are still going to have a caucus. There is a bill that says in order to go to that caucus in February and vote, you had to be a registered Republican 147 days before the caucus date. That's five months, people. That's five months. Nobody's heard about this bill. And I keep being told it's going to sit in a drawer, which means it won't come to the light of day. But there are other bills going through the legislature right now that are affecting our voting rights. So you think about it. Yeah. What else are you finding in the in the pre funnel days of this session? Well, of course, uh, Denise mentioned that I'm very big on soil and water conservation issues. And down here, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, in retirement, moved to Wayne County on this Missouri border, dead center in the state. A lot of forest timberland down here. And I just like to remind people that before we were prairie in Iowa, we were trees. Before we were prairie, the state was covered with trees. The reason the Native Americans burned the prairie was the trees kept fighting to come back. 
they keep dropping seeds or popping up suckers. Uh, the, the forests were not going to give up. But as we evolved into a commodity supported row crop system, we have lost most of our forests. There is a bill that wants to cancel the forest reserve tax credit. This tax credit says I have 18 acres in it. I have 18 acres of timber. It says I pay no taxes on them. I have rules about how I have to manage that timber, but if I do that, I keep that timber in place. It's been in law since 1906. It's never been changed. Every year, somebody comes up and says, oh, we're losing money, the county treasurers, we're losing money. But this year, the Farm Bureau, for whatever reason, has taken this issue on. So first year, I have really sensed that we're a threat. What I reminded Senator Sinclair and Representative Joel Fry was that in my part of the state, hunting is a huge part of our economy, a huge part. Those people come in and drop money right and left. They, you can't get a motel room in the four counties down here during hunting season. They flock to our gas stations and convenience stores. They go to the Hy-Vee, they go to the restaurants. It's a major economic driver. And if you allow people to go and clear those trees and you're gonna say, well, why would they do that, Mary Ellen? $8 corn, $8 corn. I moved here in 09 and I started seeing it almost immediately that timber was being cleared. If it was any bit hinting at not quite steep slope, the trees were bulldozed and corn was grown. If the slope was steep as is happening around Mike, my whole area, if the slope is steep, they'll still bulldoze those trees and then plant pasture. Why? Because they have plowed up hay and pasture land down here for corn. This is not the place to grow corn. But these are the kinds of things that happen in the dead of night. And it really, really worries me. Uh, thankfully, I'm connected to a lot of lobbyists. I'm, I'm, I will be watching tomorrow. I'll be watching a subcommittee meeting. A lot of these committees now you can watch on Zoom. The Senate, interestingly enough, although I'm told it's going to change, allows people to speak by Zoom. I don't know how long they're going to do that. The House does not. On the House side, you can watch a committee meeting by Zoom, but you can't speak. I'll stop, Julie. I've taken up too much time. Oh, well, Mary Ellen, that's really very interesting. And I, uh, I'm, you are exactly, this conversation is exactly what I was hoping we could accomplish in this open mic forum. And uh, because we all learn, we all learn. I don't know how anybody can possibly cover what's going on at the Iowa legislature thoroughly. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Please, uh, please come back. All right, who is next? And we can move to other topics of interest that you think would be important to uh, bring up here. Go back to the topic of a leader that you've admired. I think another leader I've got to mention is Roxanne Conlon, who back in the day when um, feminism was just sort of something we all didn't quite know what it meant, Roxanne clearly defined it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, there was a time most young people don't realize where women couldn't have their own names in the phone book or credit cards, or um, it, it's hard to, for younger women to understand what has changed in the, in the past few decades. And Roxanne Conlon for me was, a, and still is to this day, a real leader in, in, um, in all kinds of ways. So, Terry, you have another one? Ah, you're on mute again. Sorry. Okay, there I am. There I am. Uh, I just wanted to throw one in. I, uh, some of you know I was a pastor in Western Moines for 20 years. And the, one of the people that comes to my mind that really has influenced me, although he died some time ago, was a guy named Andy Schnorr. And Andy Schnorr was a bus driver for the MTA for 30 years. And, uh, and, and it is the largest funeral that I ever, have ever, ever had. Uh, we had people standing in the lobby and all over, people that Andy Schnorr 
had taken care of through all those years. And Andy would do stuff like take children and drive off the bus route and go to take them to their house because he thought it'd be safer. I imagine his, his supervisors would go crazy if they knew all the things that Andy did. But it's, it's the small people, some of the small people that, that have really made a difference in this world really don't get the acknowledgement. But uh, he's been one that's influenced me. Andy Schnorr was his name. All right, thanks. Hey, Kirk Stouse, can I call on you? Do you mind if I uh, ask you a couple questions? I'm I'm up at Okaboji too, uh, right this minute. And uh, you are, let's see, are you off mute? Tell me what's going on in in the uh, Dickinson County area. I saw, I saw something that they're building low rent housing for season, seasonal workers. Can you shed some light on that for me? Well, that's Arnold's Park Amusement Park is building, basically they're building a dorm to house summer employees because there's no affordable housing year round, but specifically in the summer, you know, they had, I don't know, two or 300 kids, kids, I say college and high school kids, and they, they, there's no place for them to live. So that's, I, I assume that's kind of what you're thinking. Yeah. It, it, is it under construction? Is it, is it being, yeah, built? it's all, yeah, it's all framed up and they're working on the inside. It'll, they hope to have it ready for uh, May and for this season. Well, I'm very curious about that because everywhere I go around the state, when, when asked what the specific challenges are of, of the various communities around Iowa, it's affordable housing. So it's yeah. fascinating. Oh, somebody's got, oh. yeah. Um, and are they, will that, will those uh, dorms be available during off season too, or is it just seasonal? You know, I'm sure they will, but I think the problem is if you then try to rent them off season and then somebody wants to extend into the summer, then you've defeated your purpose of getting summer help. Yeah. You know, okay. it's kind of a catch 22. So, yeah. you know, for three to five months, you have a big demand for seven to eight months. You hardly have any demand. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Okay, Julie, can I yeah. ask, can I bring up one thing and you, you can, I'm the radical crazy up here, okay? <laughs> I was thinking, I've taken the dog for a walk this morning, I'll make this real short. And I got thinking, there was an article or something on TV about kids hunger, starving and all that, especially in America and especially around the world. And I got thinking, you know, we are probably the dumbest people in the world around here all we do is plant corn and beans. Now, beans you can feed, people eat. Corn, you know, nobody eats corn. You know, we either make cattle feed or we make fuel. If we would take any of the acres we have that we do in corn now and plant any edible food, we could feed the world. But you know, you and I both know it'll never happen. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up because Ken Quinn was... Uh the director of the World Food Prize, and I don't know if he wants to chime in on this topic, but you've uh, come to the right place. Ken, what's your what's your uh, reaction to to that comment in ethanol-loving Iowa? Well, this is it's the World Food Prize in our Borlaug Dialogue. I would endeavor to bring together groups, interests, uh, to have these kind of discussions. Or uh, a, a similar one uh, would be between cattle producers and uh, and doctors who would talk about reducing the amount of red meat that uh, you eat to once or twice a month. And you, what happens is, and also in you know in, in ethanol, uh, corn versus food that uh, crops that may be consumed more by people, gets down to the fact that it's individual farmers who have investments and who have to each year, you know, turn a profit uh, to, in order to make their work pay off. And, uh, and I find around the world, I, you know, dealt with farmers in developing countries, you know, from, from Vietnam to uh, the Middle East, uh, that farmers are very conservative, very hesitant because they often feel that each year they're sort of betting everything they have on the outcome uh, and they are therefore reluctant to take big risks. 
And so to uh, advance uh, ideas and consider ideas and about farms turning away from uh, traditional corn, beans, uh, to something else, there has to be some demonstration of, of how it's going to work and some leaders who will come and say, these are real options. Otherwise, they, you know, they will tend to hold back. So I'm not a farmer. I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't come from the ag background, but I've seen these issues come up again and again. And the process of change is uh, is slow, and uh, and that. But you also find that there are various different cover crops and uh, uh, and other ways of reducing. Uh, uh, you know, waste or runoff that, that come up and get considered, and you have to keep pushing on them. You know, let me interrupt here just a second and bring in yeah. Denise O'Brien to this subject, because Denise uh, is a farmer, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Are you still with us, Denise? Oh, maybe she had to go. Excuse me. Well, Julie? Mary Ellen? Yeah. Oh, yes, Curly. Yes. I, here I am, radical crazy, but we have billions of dollars in ag subsidies every year, why not tell every individual farmer, like you just said, take 10% of your land, take it out of corn and beans, put it in, I don't care, vegetables, fruit, all that kind of stuff, and subsidize them to start with, with all that money. You know, I'm not saying a guy should never have corn and beans. He has too much invested, they, they have too much invested in equipment and grain bins and all that to drop out. But take a small percentage of each person's land and devote it you know, 1%, 1%. You could feed the world with 1% of America's farm ground. You know, so, and, and, oh, I, I was just going to say the, on the, the, the notion of uh, increasing vegetables uh, and that. That was very interesting there. We put some money in to the uh, Double Up uh, Bucks program that USDA and the state had where if you... Uh, Go if you have uh, SNAP benefits, food stamps, you go to the farmer's market, you get twice your value if you use it to spend and buy vegetables. And as I got talking to farmers who could be persuaded to do that, it turned out, it turns out that a lot of the markets that used to exist around the state where a farmer who produced vegetables and other you know, crops that wouldn't be hauled off by Cargill or ADM, they don't have a place to take them and reliably sell them. And this was an inhibition. You know, those markets had disappeared over the past 20 or 30, 40 years as agriculture changed. And they no longer existed where you could pile them in your, in your wagon and haul them to town in Dubuque or wherever. Uh, where I grew up, and sell them. And this was, the lack of these markets was an inhibition to that kind of uh, uh, change from row crops into vegetables. It was, it was an intriguing point to me. Kirk? Any follow-up? Uh, I, I, I understand that. There again, you, you know, if you're going to subsidize the farmer, subsidize the transportation system, to take the crop to the market. You know, that no offense, that's a pretty cheap system. The the raising of the crop is the expensive part, you know. And 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 do it on more of a local basis. You know, you get the government involved if you want to ship it overseas, but locally, I think you'd be dumbfounded a number of people locally that'd love to take up that and have farmer markets all year long. It'd be interesting to know um you know, Zach Nunn is the newly elected member of Congress from, uh, what is it, South Central Iowa, and he is now on the House Ag Committee. It'd be interesting if you wrote him a, a, a letter and asked his opinion about that. They're in the process of, of drafting the, um, the farm bill, and it'd be interesting to see what his uh, response is to that. You got the lobbyists. I mean, 
I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You, you, you got the biggest mountain in the world when you start fighting the lobbyists. Oh, yeah. Hey, Barry Pyatt. Yeah. Barry Pyatt, I see you're on the call. You are uh, on campus. Well, because as we... Nobody, nobody Whoa, oh. There we go. Gotcha. Barry, are you around? Where'd you go? Hey, Julie, while we're waiting for Barry, could I okay. just hop on this? Because yeah. I just, uh, while we're doing this Zoom, was reading the a client's press release. We've done a, a couple of projects in South Dakota dealing with soil health. Two words I had never heard put together uh, a couple until a couple of years ago when we started doing it. And there are some people out there um, working and, and doing the, the research has been very supportive of the public saying what, what you're up to, we get. We understand it. And so we've been met doing some messaging strategies on that. So some of the people who are actively engaged um, might want to take a look at what's going on in South Dakota with grasslands and with soil health and how that impacts the water, the air and and agricultural profitability. It's been a fascinating set of projects. Interesting. If you don't mind sending me the link to that, I will include it in the wrap up for this if you have it. Okay. It's not it's not public. The second one is not public yet, but I'll okay. I'll see if I can find the first. Okay, great, great. Thank you. Barry, we're talking about the farm bill. Can you unmute? I want to get your where'd you go? I lost you on the oh there you are. Hey Julie. Yeah. Uh this is John. I, I I've got to go here a minute, but I just want to put a plug in. I just finished four weeks of uh, uh of Zoom with Ollie at Drake University on water quality in Iowa. And it was came from the, uh, our, 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 our water distribution system here, came from the Iowa Environmental Council, it came from the lobbyists. It was the most fascinating, informative, compact session about water control in Iowa and about agriculture and what the future of agriculture is. And I recommend people to find that and see if they can get a repeat. Otherwise, I, I, I do have to go. So. Can I ask you one quick question? I realize you can't uh, sum up four months or, or uh, all those sessions of Zoom meetings. Four sessions, Zoom sessions. Ten, ten seconds or less. But what was your key takeaway? What was my key takeaway? Is yeah. there was a lot of activity going on that we don't that I have not known about. And, and and some of the issues are uh, just I mean like one issue is is uh, I was an absentee uh, uh, owner of farmland until this year but uh, what is happening is that there is activity like changing the lease to require absentee loaders not require them but let them have the option to put in their leases for conservation. On 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 uh, uh, conservation projects, we there's just a, but there is a lackadaisical don't care uh, issue in the legislature, the Iowa legislature. But anyway, these people were the the the, the uh, my takeaway is there's a lot going on that I didn't know about. And and let me ask you to send me the link to some of that so I can include it in a wrap up here if people are interested in more information about Ollie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Thanks, John. Thank you. Hey, Barry. Barry Pyatt's mm -hmm. our man in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. He worked for members of Congress. He worked for uh, members of the United States Senate. He's been around a few farm bills. So I don't know if you were on the call when the topic of the farm bill uh, came up or, or farming policy. Did you hear what Kirk had asked and suggested? And then uh, I, I did. Okay. Yeah, I, I was on. I was on the metro most of most of the call, uh, and and now at my destination. Uh, and you know, I I always get uh, I always get a little discouraged uh, when we talk about the farm bill, especially with the current folks in charge who are going to uh, be in charge of writing it, uh, because you know these are the folks who gave us freedom to farm. Uh, these are the folks who embrace the idea of market clearing price levels. And, um, you know, 
I hate to say it, but Congress has not done a good job of looking out for family farmers in a long time. Corporate farming always seems to win. And uh, when your previous speaker was talking about the need for people to contact their and you were talking about contacting Congressman Nunn in particular, that is so true, uh, because I tell you what, they never have to look for a lobbyist. Uh, a corporate lobbyist or a big uh, agribusiness lobbyist. Uh, they're, you know, practically camped outside the door during farm bill deliberations. So if you got ideas um, and you, about what you want them to do, by all means, let them know and let them know repeatedly and get your friends to let them know as well. Because um, as I say, family farmers are not going to come out on top through the natural process. Not just family farmers. What about those who uh, eat the food and drink the water and uh, are are uh, the unintended consequences of of big um, agribusiness dictating how things happen? Well, I mean, it's the same. It's the same dynamic. Um, you know, they did not. It's been a real struggle to clean up groundwater, uh, as you know. Um, uh, to is, is you know, I, I hate I hate to be. Uh, as uh, discouraged as I am on this topic. And, you know, they can surprise us still, I guess. But I think it's going to take a lot of input from uh, people because, as I say, the folks with the loud horn are uh, the corporate lobbyists and the folks that are running the House in particular are really attuned to uh, the corporate lobbyists as opposed to, um, as you say, the folks that drink the water, the folks that buy the food. So this seems like a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, if cover crops, if 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 agriculture put cover crops on their land, that would, what I understand, is is cut the nitrate pollution considerably. But it would, Jim Sayer, you're on the you're on the call. You know more about this. Would it? Why aren't there incentives for for farmers to do that? Jim, can you answer that question for me? Well, first question or first answer is there are incentives. Uh, I think Iowa's compared to other uh, states may be smaller. Um, and I'm on the local soil and water conservation district board as is Mary Ellen. That's how I met her actually. Uh, and we struggle to get participants in that program. It's, uh, and, and there are, there are issues with cover crops. One is the cost of course, but can you get a return on that and either reduced uh, herbicides the, the next season, or will there be increased soil fertility that'll reduce your uh, need for uh, the fertilizer? But there's always, there, there are not commonly accepted agreement on those two points either. So it's perceived as a cost, it's perceived as a, re, uh, a, a thing that will reduce your yields, and it's a hassle, okay? Uh, you can't just pull in in the fall with your big ripper and do all your uh, corn ground you know, cover crops require another step. It requires the, the seeding. And, and then in the spring, you have to do something with those, terminate them. And if you do that with herbicide, that's what typically is done. So, so there is incentives. I guess that was your question. I don't know if it's enough, if it would be more, would that be a, a better way to help encourage that practice? But it's like in the building industry, we've always done it this way. And I, you know, I'm just a small part-time farmer myself. So I'm certainly not the large commercial uh, guy that goes in and has multiple hundreds or thousands of acres to worry about. And I can mess around with stuff like that, but our others choose not to. And it's just perceived as the cost is way higher than what you're going to economically get at the end. Would it matter if, if uh, some subsidies were targeted that way? I think that's a good idea. And I think uh, perhaps in, in the farm bill, that's always like brought up. Well, can you have more conservation requirements in order to get some of the benefits, either the crop insurance reduction or something like that? Or can your history of crop, uh, say, uh, crop insurance production, if your yields happen to go down due to some of these conservation measures, can you actually not use that as a detriment to participate in, in the future because as your crop yields go down, maybe they will for a time that reduces what you can benefit for crop insurance, you know, so it's based on yield history. So, but that's a, a complicating factor that I think is just a challenge for people to think it's worth figuring out. 
Well, Jim, if you're up for it, I would love it if you would write an op-ed piece that, um, you know, we would certainly run as commentary in the Iowa Writers Collaborative. And Iowa Capital Dispatch oftentimes picks it up. But it's certainly a topic worth worth dealing with, and especially somebody who, who understands it from a from a farming point of view, I think that would be fascinating. Would you Would you be up for that? Well, I'll have to think about it because, you know, you always call who are the experts. And for example, when we look at uh, uh, commodity groups, I would say the Iowa Soybean Association currently is the most active in promoting uh, conservation agronomists and those kind of things. So you always start with those folks who are the experts on yield and productivity, which the measure is productivity, right? That's Everyone seems to say that's the measure of success of any farm program. So, so I'm not going to answer your question right now. I think about it, Julie. All right. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, this hour has flown by. How many like the um, open mic format? Do you like it? All right. Great. Great. Well, we'll do it again. Next week, we have a futurist coming on this call. His name is David Houle. I've had him be a speaker to my Vistage business group a couple of times and he is I wouldn't say magic in his understanding of what's coming next but he very much spends morning noon and night thinking about future trends and how they're going to impact the world and us specifically I highly recommend you join us I will tell you that people who join a vistage group spend about 1200 1200 months now Terry maybe more for the privilege of hearing guys like David Hool. And uh, I'm just bringing them to you just for fun. So there we go. Join me next week. Thanks for being with us. And we will see you when we see you.